0: This is the episode you've all been waiting, folks. Seton Hall and St. John's are going to get the preview edition today. And we'll start off with my alma mater, the Seton Hall Pirates. And joining me today to talk Seton Hall basketball, he's a Seton Hall alum like myself, a WSU alum, and he's a contributor for Daily Dose of Hoops, the one and only Jason Garrett. Jason, how are we doing?
1: I'm doing great, Tim. How are you?
0: I couldn't complain, man. College basketball season, I mean, listen, it's right around the corner. You can definitely feel that buzz. I mean, I think this is a buzz around the college basketball season that at least I haven't felt in at least five years.
1: Well, For Seton Hall fans, it's a buzz that you probably haven't felt in at least 20 years. So it's it's certainly uh, shaping up to be an eventful year uh, all around the Big East and, and certainly around college basketball as a whole.
0: Yeah, definitely. In terms, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, definitely. You have, I feel like you have a consensus number one for the first time since probably that Kentucky team that nearly won the national championship uh, with Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Willie Cauley Stein. Just to name a couple of those guys, and just the overall talent in college basketball, you know, from top to bottom, is really, really good, and especially so in the biggies, and especially with a team like Seton Hall. So uh, let's just get into it and talk about how they they fared a year ago. They lost their core four seniors that basically brought the program back to relevance, and you lose those four guys, including the biggies' all-time leading rebounder, and yet somehow they find a way to make it back to the NCAA tournament. What were some of the big things that you were the most impressed by with the Seton Hall team a year ago?
1: Well, first and foremost, the ascension of Miles Powell to from being a, a very good player uh, as a sophomore to being uh, one of the best guards in the country as a junior—it it really does bear repeating over and over again. I, I think everybody knew Miles Powell would would be pretty good, and that uh, he was a very capable uh, first option offensively. But the the level that he took it to uh, in last season was was unbelievable. It was—I I remember just sitting. Uh, at the games and watching some of the things he did, I remember turning to my right and to my left to some of the media in attendance. And I remember just going, wow. Uh, so the things that he did were, were things that not a lot of players are, are able to do on a nightly basis. So that was probably the most, uh, the, the, mo- the most, the uh, most thing, the thing that most sticks out from, from last year is how he became uh, how he took that step from being a very good player to being a, uh, a great player and now coming back this year a chance to be one of the best players ever to play at Seton Hall.
0: Now, now speaking of that on a scale from one to ten like how what's the importance of that you know affecting the team going into the season because I think for me I got a pretty high
1: well, him coming back is is the reason that that Seton Hall is going to be uh, projected to go uh, where they're projected to go, which is uh, to the NCAA tournament once again, and and possibly into that second weekend, which is what the goal is is always to do. Uh, so, the, on a scale of one to ten, the the importance of Miles Powell coming back probably is at least a nine. I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, me personally. I think this team is a completely different ball club if Miles Powell doesn't come back because he's that quintessential shooting guard. Although he is a little undersized for their role at 6'2, I mean he embodies everything you want in a college basketball shooting guard. He he is an excellent shooter, excellent scorer, and when he when he has the chance to show it off, he's an excellent passer, and he's a really good defender, and that's something he really doesn't get a lot of credit for. And I'll be honest, I feel like that's got to be something that rubbed off of him from Quincy McKnight.
1: Well, yeah when when you when you add Quincy into that backcourt, him and Powell really complement each other well. With McKnight kind of being more of the more of the uh, defensive bulldog, so to speak. But uh, for Powell, uh, he may, he might be undersized to be a shooting guard say in the NBA but as far as college goes it really doesn't matter what size you are if you can shoot like him and score like him it doesn't really matter if you're five foot ten or six foot seven if you, if you got that ability uh, at the college level it's going to come out and it certainly has Powell.
0: So l- let's kind of talk about you know how the rest of the team is kind of uh, uh, percolating in terms of how the rotations are going to look out. I mean, I know there's several questions in terms of, you know, the center position, for example. Now you have but two seven footers in the mix with Romero Gill, and now you get Ike Biagu from Florida State, who is now eligible. Um, from what Kevin Willard said in an interview with Jerry Carino, looks like they're going to be platooning things quite a bit at that center position. But with that length that they have not only at the center position, but also a power forward, this is a team that small, that every team in the conference really should fear attacking on the interior.
1: Yeah. Adding, adding a presence like Ike Obiagu is, is going to be pretty big coming in at seven foot two. And they list him at 265 pounds. Honestly, he looks bigger than that. Uh, but he, he being a legitimate shot blocker and, and being able to have two guys who can, who can have that presence along with, uh, with Gil, who really came into his own at times last year uh, for Seton Hall, it's certainly going to be a, a, a good thing for, for Kevin Willard and, and company to have in terms of being able to protect the paint uh, like they really have not been able to do uh, on a consistent basis with that shot blocking presence the last few years. <laughs>
0: And I, the other big question mark is the continued development of na- the guys that were freshmen a year ago, now going into their sophomore year. We, I, we all kind of know where the starting lineup is going to be with Sandro Mamukelashvili moving to his natural position at power forward and then rounding it out with Cale McKnight in the lineup. But I think the big question mark is the – continued development now of Anthony Nelson and Jared Roden, two guys that if they really make a drastic improvement could potentially be in the running for either biggie six man of the year, or most improved.
1: They both had uh, flashes of brilliance as freshmen and they were allowed to kind of be brought along at that kind of, standard learning curve they weren't thrown into thrown into action being forced to produce a ton right away because of the presence of of powell and mcknight and some of the veterans that that Seton Hall all had uh but for for rodin the the word on the street is that he looked really really good before suffering an ankle injury and he's still kind of working his way back from that uh he's he's that kind of prototypical wing six foot six who can who can do a lot of different things that that kevin willard likes and for anthony nelson uh, his passing ability was certainly on, on full display. And, and what really struck me last year was his poise uh, as a freshman coming into college basketball for the, uh, for the first time, the the fact that he looked as, as comfortable with the ball in his hands as he did and also has uh, a little bit more height at six foot four is, is really an encouraging sign. So the, the development of those guys, I, I think is, is going to bear watching, even though, even though still they're, they're underclassmen on a team with a lot of veterans and a lot, of, uh, a lot of presences, like you've mentioned, the starting lineup that's pretty much set at this point, uh, their continued development will be something else to watch, I guess, in addition to the on-the-court success that the Pirates are projected to have this year with all of the uh, talent that they have back in their lineup.
0: I feel like the continued development of those guys is going to play a really important role because if those guys continue to make those big strides, especially with Roden, oh, man, this team and their depth could be a major problem for a lot of teams, not only in the biggies, but in their non-conference schedule, which we'll get to in just a second. But I guess the last question I got for you as we uh, transition into talking about the schedule as it's coming to fruition now is Torian. I think Torian Thompson, I mean, this guy, there were some points last season where he just looked absolutely brilliant. The Kentucky game being a primary example where he could just score in ways you'll be surprised by with a guy that, of his size, but you know, towards the end of the year, he was almost non-existent and most of the time. You know, at the very end, you didn't see him on the floor at all. So I guess the big question is: uh, Will Torian Thompson see that role either stay the same or even expand um, with with him being a junior now?
1: Well, you mentioned the Kentucky game. That was probably the best game of the year uh, for Thompson, and the Pirates don't win that game without his contributions. He's got all the talent in the world, and, and everybody can see it. It's it's pretty obvious that he's very, very skilled. Uh, the issue with, with Thompson last season, point blank, was decision-making at times. He would take some, some shots that were ill-advised. He would, uh, there, there were other things on the floor that I'm sure the coaching staff uh, uh, wanted him to clean up a little bit and then, I would argue that the reason that he didn't see the floor much down the stretch is because uh, the games were so important that the, the coaching staff didn't really want one of those mistakes to pop up in a big spot. So uh, whether he, I I think he does see the floor uh, coming back uh, for his now junior season uh, at Seton hall. But he's, if, if he's to see the floor more than he did last year, then I would think that the coaching staff would look for that decision making process Uh, on the court to be a little bit more clean than it was last year
0: yeah and and he'll be uh in that rotation at the power forward position but another guy and this is the only freshman that kevin willer brought in tyrese samuel i've been hearing a lot of good things about this kid he looked good in the u19 world championships with the canadian national team uh but what have you seen so far from tyrese samuel that's caught your eye
1: well, to be perfectly honest, I have not seen him at all. So uh, he, the fact that he is a freshman uh, on a veteran team will allow him to kind of be brought along, like much like uh, Anthony Nelson and Jared Roden were last year. That Seton Hall won't have to rely on him from day one to be a huge contributor. But you look at the size, six foot ten. Uh, you, you look at how how he performed, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in some of these in some of these off season uh, things and, and he's, his future probably is, is bright for, for Seton hall. But the the good news is that uh, the pirates have enough depth up front that they won't be counting on him right away to be a big producer.
0: So let's transition into talking about that non-conference schedule. And if you thought last year's non-conference schedule was a gauntlet for the pirates, boy, this one is going to make that one look like a cakewalk so let's just get into some of the big big games I mean obviously you start off with Wagner and Stony Brook but then that first Prudential Center game against the presumptive number one team in the country Michigan State and I I mean if this is the opportunity that the Pirates need to really prove themselves nationally I mean if Kentucky couldn't do it last year then this has to be the game
1: I don't know that Seton Hall has ever had a a bigger non-conference opponent ever at home in their history, and uh, you, I would I would know guys like Jerry Carino who are who were around in the early '90s when when Seton Hall uh, sold out the Meadowlands for Georgetown and and things like that. Uh, I, I would definitely go to them for for confirmation of that, but uh, certainly in my lifetime, uh, uh, and obviously since. Uh, attending seat and all as a student there has never been this amount of hype around a non-conference home game you mentioned their presumptive number one in the country Michigan State it's possible that they will still be there uh that early in the season and the tickets for the Prudential Center in that game are very nearly sold out and I'm talking the entire arena not just the lower bowl which has probably been sold out for months now uh big big time uh matchup big time opponent big time coaching uh Uh, matchup with Willard taking on Tom Izzo there big time uh, prime time tip off at 830 so it will be uh, on a Thursday night so people will be watching that game it'll be uh, a matchup between uh, two teams that are expected to do big things Cassius Winston and Miles Powell Uh, that's worth the price of admission uh, just on the surface there that I'm really excited for that game that that should be a, a raucous atmosphere in Newark.
0: I'll tell you what. Based on how the NFL's kind of scheduled things, I'm I, I, my guess is that Michigan State scene hall will probably be more intriguing to watch than whatever the NFL's got for that Thursday night.
1: Well, let's see. So, I, I would I would think based on based on the track record of Thursday night football that that you might be right about that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I got a good gut feeling about it. Uh, but and not to mention, I mean, if you thought Michigan State was difficult talk about the gone that they might run through in the Bahamas and arguably the most difficult uh, Beast Week tournament of the year, and that's the battle for Atlantis. And they open up with a team that has moved the probably moved their way all the way into the preseason top 15 or 20, uh, the Oregon Ducks. And I feel like if you're seeing Hall, I feel like that's about as must-win of a game – as you could possibly guess, similar to the way that Florida was almost a must-win game for the team back in 2016-17, uh, back in the Avocare invitational that year. Uh, would you agree with me on that?
1: Well, I'm not I'm not entirely sure if it's a must win game. That that tournament, as you mentioned, is is really, really tough. No matter obviously they open up with Oregon, but then they have a chance uh, in the second round to face Gonzaga. Then you look at the other side of the brat, you have North Carolina and Michigan in that tournament that, and Iowa state as well. Uh, that you really is a gauntlet. And uh, I would think that the pirates would love to set themselves up, uh, with some of those, uh, some of those high, high opponents, uh, in that tournament. But I don't know. I don't know about must win against, against Oregon, given the fact that they that tournament is just so tough. Uh, they would really like to I, I, to set themselves up presumably with uh, with Gonzaga in the second round uh, as Gonzaga's uh, facing Southern miss in that in that first game uh, to call and must win maybe not we'll see how the uh, the early part of the season plays out um, but certainly that that's a game the Pirates would definitely like to have to to get themselves to that Gonzaga second round they, they've done this in the past with these, uh, Thanksgiving area or Thanksgiving uh, time tournaments where they had a chance with a victory to set up a, gr- a great matchup in the second round with a, with a great opponent and been unable to capitalize so I'm not sure if it's must win but it's certainly a game that they would like to have
0: yeah and you mentioned you know that trend where they had a chance to win their first game to face a very good team the next night. 2015 in Charleston, they had a chance to beat Long Beach State. They didn't. And instead of getting Virginia, they got Bradley. And then, obviously, the year after that, they lost to Florida. And instead of getting Gonzaga, they ended up getting Quinnipiac. So, yeah, you're definitely uh, you're definitely right on that point. And I feel like if you want that really excellent non-conference you know schedule and resume, then you Beating Oregon to get to Gonzaga and potentially a North Carolina or Michigan is pretty. Not saying it's necessary, but it's pretty important to have.
1: Yeah, you if you if you want to if you want to position yourself in a, in a great spot to make the NCAA tournament nowadays, you you have to go out of, out of your conference and schedule up, and that's exactly what Seton Hall has done the last couple of years.
0: And then in in December, you got the Big East Big 12 challenge at Iowa State at Rutgers. And then that big home game against Maryland, another game against a Big Ten team that's going to draw a huge crowd. And then they close it out uh, with Prairie View A&M. And I'm, I'm looking at that Rutgers game, a Rutgers team that has definitely improved a lot under Steve Peichel. But in a way, is this still considered a trap game for the Pirates?
1: Absolutely not. the uh, The Rutgers rivalry is is intense every year. It matters a ton in the Garden State every single season, as as Seton Hall alums and Rutgers alums know. Uh, the fact that it's at Rutgers, uh, the, the rack is going to be loud. It is going to be uh, It's going to be rollicking, it, and that it will not be a friendly environment whatsoever. Uh, Tra- the definition of a trap game is a, a, lesser, a lesser team than, uh, than a game that you kind of circle on the calendar, which I guess on paper, uh, Rutgers isn't Maryland. But that, right. that Rutgers game is going to uh, – it, it, it's, it's really going to uh, provide a, a stretch of three straight games uh, with Iowa State right before, Maryland right after that there, you can't take any anything for granted in any of those three games. If the the history between Seton Hall and Rutgers says anything, it's going to be close. There's going to be some wackiness that's going to happen. Uh, it happens almost every year, whether it's an official's call or whether it's something that happens off the court that affects the momentum one way or the other. Uh, it, Rutgers is never really a trap game for Seton Hall. That, that's something that I think – Uh, Certainly, fans of both schools circle on the calendar. It's something that I know that the players will want to uh, circle on the calendar as well because they're not going to want to lose that the bragging rights in the Garden State.
0: I feel like with the Pirates being so good uh, again this year, uh, in a way, I I see somewhat of a mirror effect from the 2017 game where the Core Four went into there trying to finish off a four-year sweep of the scarlet knights and i in a way they kind of overlooked them and ended up losing the game and i feel like miles powell and company i feel like they're gonna try to do everything they can to avoid making that same mistake
1: well and powell was on the team in 2017 when 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 that when those things happened so that that was uh, that's definitely uh something that he'll remember and uh and something that will certainly motivate him if he hasn't already motivated uh already. And and having known Miles Powell for three years now, I I would think he's that the motivation will certainly be there anyway, but that, that could be another motivating factor in uh, going down to Piscataway and, and taking on Rutgers in that game.
0: So let's talk about the conference schedule. And that's something that Kevin Willard has kind of had a gripe with over the years, (laughs) every year, but this year, I mean, this is about as favorable a schedule in conference that you can possibly have if you're Seton Hall. You open up at DePaul, and then you get some other favorable games, Georgetown and Marquette at home, Butler and St. John's on the road, and then the only really challenging game – being that road game at Xavier on January 8th. So the Pirates have a really good chance now, even though they start with four of six on the road, to get off to a really good start and set the tone for themselves and assert themselves at the top of the conference right away.
1: They have a chance to, certainly. Uh, if there's one thing about the Big East year in and year out, it's, it's tougher than you think. Uh, those, those road games are, are tough no matter what. Uh, the road game at Xavier being the toughest uh, definitely of the bunch. Home game against Marquette won't be uh, too much of a cakewalk either uh, with Marcus Howard and, and company. Uh, Georgetown is expected to be much improved as well. Uh, I, I know that uh, if, if Kevin Willard had a, a, a choice, he would probably like to open up at home instead of on the road. But uh, given that uh, the Pirates are favored to do quite well, the conference really didn't do him any favors there. Um, it, it, every single Big East game is is going to be tough, especially with, with that uh, the f- uh, four out of s- the first six on the road. Seton Hall is going to be tested, but the good thing for the Pirates is they have the type of team uh, with with Miles Powell at the helm, of course, and, and, and some veterans now in their in the veteran starting lineup, a veteran core returning, that they can go into that stretch of games and, and not be tremendously phased by it and not be thrown off by – the fact that they have to play so many tough road games so early in the conference season.
0: Now, I mean, obviously, the ghost they've been trying to chase for so long is Villanova, and yes, they've been able to get him in the regular season. But the one place that's been like a house of horrors for them has been in Philadelphia for the longest time is is Finner Pavilion. Now it's been the Wells Fargo Center over the last couple of years, and last year, I mean. It was a bloodbath, and the game ended up being so boring that even the fans got a little bit bored with it with Villanova ended up blowing out Seton Hall. And again, Seton Hall hasn't won at Nova since 1994, and I feel like in order for them to really show and prove that they deserve to either be a one- or two-seed in the Big East, I feel like they really need to go into Philly and make it a ball game with Villanova.
1: I think you might be right there. Villanova is the class of the conference, and they're they're you know on top until someone knocks them off, so to speak. Uh, it's a two thirty Saturday tip off at the Wells Fargo Center again. It's going to be on national TV on on Fox's uh, national network. Uh, that that game is is one that is it's it's become one of the Big East premier matchups, Seton Hall and Villanova, because as you mentioned, one of the only schools that has ever been able to consistently beat villanova year in and year out is, is seton hall they do they just match up consistently well uh with jay wright's team uh, I, as far as again must win games uh, it's a little bit early to be talking about must win uh especially for a game that's not for not until february 8th uh, that will certainly uh do uh another uh, it'll, it'll certainly get everybody's attention again if if seton hall hasn't done that already with the with the number of games uh on national tv before that you mentioned the michigan state game the uh you you mentioned maryland you mentioned uh the uh, couple of uh opponents that they'll have on on national uh, fox tv is st john's and xavier before that game uh if seton hall hasn't already put uh people on notice uh certainly going into philadelphia beating the presumptive year in and year out conference favorites will will do the trick
0: yeah i mean I really wouldn't say it's a must win, but considering how they've done there over the last few seasons, I'm just saying that they really just need to make it a competitive game because over the last five seasons at least, except for maybe once, it really hasn't been competitive with the closest game being decided by nine points.
1: Oh, it's been a house of horrors, as you said. So if they're able to, uh, if they're, if they're able to get that victory, it would be obviously huge for, for, the, for Seton Hall's entire fan base, who has had to live through 20 years, uh, 25 years, actually, of, of losing in Philadelphia. Uh, it would be huge for, for the fans in general. And with, the, with that matchup being kind of uh, right at the, uh, the turn of the calendar with one month left to go, that would also could provide the Pirates with a big boost uh, for their schedule uh, in conference down the stretch as well.
0: Yeah, and speaking of down the stretch, you know, two of their final three games. I mean, those are the two games I'm definitely looking forward to the most in the entire conference schedule. The first one being that February 29th matchup in Milwaukee against Marquette. And I guarantee you, I talked about this with Andrew Goldstein in the last episode about how hostile of an environment it's going to be because I think these Marquette fans aren't going to forget what happened in the Garden last season in the Big East semis. And not to mention, you have that added bonus of a potential battle with whoever having the better game winning Big E's Player of the Year a couple weeks after that in New York uh, during Big East tournament time. And then you have that Villanova Senior Night game at The Rock and in a game that could potentially decide who takes home the Big East regular season title. Um so, uh, Jason, I'll put it to you. Do you see that Villanova game specifically being the game that could decide who gets crowned the number one seed in the Big East tournament the following week?
1: Well, if everything goes according to plan, it it, it certainly could. Uh, that that Villanova senior night is going to be uh, it's going to be one of the one of the most special senior nights. Uh, in recent Seton Hall history, you look back to uh, the senior night with with the core four, so to speak, of, of Delgado and Rodriguez and Carrington uh, and Sonogo. That was a special senior night. Going back to my time as a student, the senior night for Jordan Theodore and Herb Pope, uh, my senior year was was very special. Uh, you, you go back even further, Miles Powell is, is obviously going to, be, uh, going to be honored that night, and he is, as we talked a little earlier about, He's got the potential to be one of the very best players to ever put on a Seton Hall uniform, and so that'll be his last home game. It always seems to work out that this, that Seton Hall plays Villanova in one of those late-season uh, uh, seed-deciding games uh, at Prudential Center. Uh, the game before against Marquette uh, that you mentioned, uh, if, if the Marquette fans' uh, reaction to what happened in March is any indication, they will be certainly out for blood in Milwaukee in that game. Uh, so it'll, it'll kind of be, uh, one extreme to the other, a very hostile environment on the road. And then, uh, an, an adoring environment at home back to back just five days apart, uh, as the calendar turns to March, it should be a, a heck of a lot of fun.
0: And speaking of March, obviously this team has expectations to go deep into March. They haven't been able to really make that deep run into the second weekend since the year 2000. So I guess I'll put it to you. Um, um, how many? Win- I guess a two-part question. Um, how many wins do you see this team potentially getting at least in, the, in their thirty-game regular season? And then, do you see this team, you know, making it to that second weekend for the first time in two decades?
1: I don't think uh, I don't think twenty wins is out of the question uh, this year, and I don't think the second weekend is out of the question either because for all of the uh, youth that, and the talent that has been infused into college basketball over the last uh, decade or so with so many, uh, so many young players having such big of an impact and the, uh, the freshman learning curve as a result, kind of uh, lessening as a result of that uh, Seton hall has something that every single coach in the country wants. And that is uh, veteran uh Players who who you can count on uh, in big spots, and and also uh, and also a, a depth factor. So, and Seton Hall has both of those things. They are more uh, more so than really uh, in any year over the last five or so, including that that's the senior laden uh, class that we mentioned before. I think that this year that, that Seton Hall has the, uh, the level of experience necessary, especially since they'll be tested again with this non-conference schedule with a lot of high major opponents potentially. Uh, they, they've got the ingredients to do it. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't think that 20 wins is out of the question. I don't think uh, uh, the second weekend of the NCAA tournament is out of the question uh, either.
0: So I think the big thing is – I mean, me personally, I actually have this team winning between 23 and 24 regular season games. I, I think they do end up winning a Big East tournament title in Powell's senior season. I, I feel like he's due for one, for sure. And then um, I definitely have them making the the second weekend. And then now the big question is, you know, like how they end up stacking up against some of the best teams nationally. And I, I think they're going to shock a lot of people and, you know, give some of these blue bloods a fight that not a lot of people, not a lot of other schools would be able to put up.
1: Well, with, with the tools, with, with the, with all the things I, I mentioned before, the fact that the pirates are so well equipped this year uh, with that comes real expectations for the first time in a long time. And, uh, it's, it's a matter of, of how the team handles handles those expectations and whether or not that they have the uh, the ingredients necessary to to take advantage of, of this opportunity that they have this year to to really make some noise and and, and uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they'll shock anyone this year because I, I think last year that the win over Kentucky the win over Maryland on the road I think they did shock a couple of people last year uh, this this season I don't know if if Seton Hall doing well, uh will shock anybody. They're, they're projected to be in the top 25 uh, to start the season. They'll be on everybody's radar, and uh, they won't be sneaking up on anybody this season, I don't think, not not with Miles Powell in their starting lineup.
0: Well, put it, put it really well there. It's first time Seton Hall is really getting a lot of national attention like this. I mean, even more than that core four group did a couple years ago, first time they've really gotten this level of attention in at least – 20 years but people have been saying it's it feels like the 1990s all over again so it'll be interesting to see if they can keep reliving those glory days in south orange and at the prudential center as well jason thanks for your time i'll definitely be checking with you throughout the season as well
1: Tim, thanks so much for having me on good luck
0: all right thank you man
1: back inside the igloo
0: before we get started on this one thanks again to jason Garrett for talking Seton Hall with me, and now we move across the Hudson River and talk about Seton Hall's rival across the bridge in Queens, the St. John's Red Storm, and here to talk St. John's with me is another guy from A Daily Dose of Hoops, founder of Daily Dose of Hoops, mind you, it's Jaden Daly. Jaden, how we doing? Tim, doing well, brother. Thanks for having me on. Yep, of course, man, my pleasure. So... St. John's last year, first tournament appearance in four years. And that was quite the roller coaster ride of the season with a lot of big wins and a lot of disappointment as well. Yet they still made the tournament. However, a lot of carryover now moving into this year. Chris Mullen no longer the head coach. Mike Anderson's gone. Uh, Mike Anderson is now the new head coach, I should say. Shamori Pond's gone. Justin Simon's gone. And LJ Figueroa nearly left. Uh, so just kind of just take me through, like, just the overall chaos that ensued uh, during the offseason. Like, what were some of the big reasons why Chris Mullen ended up leaving? And then, obviously, everyone knew Shimori Pond was gone. But the fact that Justin Simon then left and nearly
2: LJ Figueroa too. I think you said it best with. When- Chaos as your description of what happened at St. John's this past season, Tim. Last year was an interesting case for the Red Storm. Some argued that it should not have even been in the NCAA tournament, albeit St. John's did get sent to Dayton as part of the first four. I was out there to cover that game against Arizona State, where St. John's came out very flat in the first half and really couldn't get out of the box and really get it into a rhythm in that game. And Chris Mullen's press conference was very cryptic that night. It hinted at maybe not being there next season, even though he had pieces in place. And both Mullen and Shamori Ponds no commented that night in Dayton when asked about what the future held for next season, which is now upon us, about a month or so away. But Mike Craig, the Saint John's athletic director, gave Mullen a vote of confidence. And then a week later, there was a report that Bobby Hurley was interested in the St. John's job. Mullen ended up announcing his resignation after four years, and maybe it was a year too soon. I do believe that Mullen could have done just as much in year five with the pieces that he still had. But nonetheless, Mike Anderson is now in charge here at St. John's, and he's done a very great job. All things considered, in six months on the job, holding Mustafa Heron and LJ Figueroa and getting a bunch of other commitments to really fill out a roster. But it's it full off season for St. John's. That's not something you normally see here. But now, for a program on its fourth, 10 years, it's become all too familiar.
0: Yeah, and it's really unusual for a program like St. John, so storied and recognizable because they are New York City's uh, a facto biggest team. They're like the most important team in the city. I mean, they play in Madison Square Garden for a few of their home games every single season. But, you know, and Louis Carnesecca, Chris Mullen, Mark Jackson, just to name a few guys that made their program so great in the 80s. And now... Uh, anytime they do come into re- national relevance, it's in a very bleak form. They haven't been very good, in, at least in terms of being in the top 25 at the very end of the season since Steve Lavin was there back in 2011 with all those great players and making them the tournament as a sixth seed that year. But uh, how now that Chris Mullen's gone, four years – and his conference record was not very good. He only won twenty conference games in his four years. If you were to describe his tenure as head coach in one word, uh what word would you use?
2: Hmm. Good question, Tim. I I would I'd probably go with unfulfilled, because as you mentioned, St. John's had the wins on paper, especially in the last two seasons, but that was the benefit of, of a very favorable non-conference schedule that allowed St. John's to build up wins early in the season to further position itself in Biddy's play, which ultimately never materialized. And I do think the end of the opener against Seton Hall last December did ultimately have a lot to do with how St. John's got out of the gate in conference play last season, of course the Michael Stevens issue on the whistle and then Shavar Reynolds hitting the three at the buzzer to win it for Seton Hall right before New Year's Eve. But St. John's did have the talent in place, but more often than not, it was hamstrung by a lack of solid and consistent in-game coaching, no disrespect to Mullen. But when you're hiring a guy that has never done it before, you're going to have that problem. And, St. John's fan base, Tim, is a very fickle group. It, It knows a winner when it sees one, and it has very high expectations, some of which are from the old guard that believes it's 1985 here in 2019, some of which is from the younger group that's clamoring for a winner that it hasn't seen. But when you add that all up, it comes down to the same issue where the New York crowd wants a winner to embrace, and Unfortunately, in four years, by and large, that was not it.
0: Yeah. Now, um, to talk about, like, the end of the season, it looked like they were almost a lock, if you will, to at least finish in the top four of the conference. They locked up third place by beating Seton Hall pretty handily, although they nearly blew a huge late lead. But they ended it by losing their last three in a row, including – Two losses to Xavier in rather embarrassing fashion. So I think the big question regarding, you know, the end of last season for St. John's with all that promise, I mean, it looked like they were a lock to make it into the big dance after that big win. And then all of a sudden, Selection Sunday comes around and they're sweating it out.
2: Yeah, the the loss to Georgetown. The loss to Providence didn't help matters either in February at Madison Square Garden, where it was essentially a must-win game for RPI purposes, and St. John's just did not look the part of an NCAA tournament team. And that was the conundrum surrounding the Reds. It would show up in games you you didn't expect, and it would come out flat in in games where St. John's was to dominate. You mentioned the Seton Hall game where St. John's got off to such a hot start and Kevin Wilson in the opening minutes and Seton Hall found a way to pull that out too. It Whether or not the team was ready in big game moments and then there was the loss to DePaul where Paul Reed and Femi Alujabi basically worked at the Red Storm and extra like 14 or 15 points and was a non-factor essentially Marvin Clark basically said they got, and I quote, "bitched in the post. And that was the case with St. John's far too often last season, Tim, where they were out hustled and outplayed by better athletes. And it, it reared its head in March.
0: So, you know, moving forward into, into the 2019-20 season, the beginning of the Mike Anderson era, Honestly, I'm seeing a lot of the signs from the beginning of the Mullen era four years ago. You talk about a relatively young team with only a couple of familiar faces with Heron and Figueroa leading the charge. They're two excellent players, but the supporting cast is kind of lacking in that regard, where guys who barely played a year ago are now going to be asked to take on a much larger role. And not to mention with the schedule, a fairly weak non-conference schedule, one that I actually graded a C plus, which was the second worst, only, behind, only ahead of DePaul in terms of how weak it was. But uh, just to the question at hand regarding the whole situation as they enter the first uh, game of the season in about a month, uh, I guess what's the biggest question mark uh, with the St. John's team as – Again, opening night approaches.
2: Getting the supporting cast to show up and getting a consistent, consistent and cohesive brand among the incumbents and the newcomers. And that's, that's going to take time. It's going to take a couple of weeks to develop. I do believe that this roster that Mike Anderson has put together is a lot better than the one that Mullen inherited four years ago that was essentially... MacGyver together with bubble gum and paperclips so to speak but this roster has Figueroa has Mustafa Heron I do think Red Williams is going to have a breakout sophomore season he and Josh Roberts will get more playing time as well David Carraher the transfer from Houston Baptist is eligible as well you also have a young but promising front line Ian Sear the transfer that came in if he if he becomes eligible should help St. John's as well, and we're forgetting Rasheem Dunn, who averaged 15 points at St. Francis, Brooklyn a couple of years ago, and if he gets a waiver as well, could end up being the point guard on this team, along with Heron and Figueroa in the backcourt as a 3-4 type. You're talking about a team that will play small, but a team will be in contention in most of these games just because of their Mike Anderson plays. I think I do think that style is going to catch a lot of teams off guard, especially in the bees.
0: So let's uh, let's go into the non-conference schedule. It's not really extremely challenging, with a very good portion of the games being either at Carneseca Arena, which is, I believe, nine games at Carneseca, and one in the Garden against West Virginia, and then they have the. And then they play out in Connecticut against Arizona State. And if they potentially somehow win that game, they could potentially play Virginia. And then also they're playing out in San Francisco at the brand new Chase Center against Arizona. But I think I'm going to turn, turn my attention in terms of the game that I think St. John's really needs to have the most because I feel like this is the epitome of a trap game against an opponent that should absolutely not be slept on. And that's that November 16th game against Vermont.
2: I agree with that. I do think the Vermont game is probably the best game on St. John's non-conference schedule. Vermont brings a lot back from a team that won the America East last season. Anthony Lamb is one of the best players in the nation that a majority of people haven't heard of. And St. John's will get to see him among others early in the season. John Becker should have had a power five job two years ago. That's, an indication of how well he's been able to keep the vermont program relevant in his, in his time at the helm you're also forgetting arizona later on in the season in a neutral site game in san francisco that that only helps st john's own in a big east play the arizona state game which is a rematch of last season's first four matchup which if st john's wins would allow the red storm to play the reigning national champion in virginia so we're not at we're not going out there and saying that St. John's has a cupcake schedule like it did last season when it played half the NEC and MEAC to get through November and December. But it's not, it's not seat hall schedule, for instance, you look at what Kevin Willard's done and it's night and day compared to what St. John's has, but I do think it's a schedule befitting the team. I really do. I,
0: I would agree with you on that. I think the way that they scheduled, I mean, it's definitely an improvement from let's say the, the schedule that Pat Ewing inherited in his first year at Georgetown.
2: Yeah, that, compared to Georgetown and what Rutgers did the first two years under Steve Peichel, it's it's definitely a, a, a fitting schedule for St. John's, and, and it's one that isn't going to really get killed and raked over the tolls by the media here compared to those two.
0: I, and I think if there's one game that I think St. John's – can find a way to steal, really. I feel like it's going to be the MSG game against West Virginia because it's going to be their first game in the Garden for the regular season after playing a bunch of Karnaseka. And I think think you're going to see the juices flowing with that entire St. John's team. I think the way that I see it, similar to the Syracuse game during the first year of the Mullen era where – they just played with a fire underneath them, and
2: they were able to win a game that, honestly, they had no business winning. That's a good call, Tim, and I, and I think this West Virginia game is going to be a knockdown, drag out brawl, quite honestly. When you look at the style that Mike Anderson plays, the 40 minutes of hell influenced by the great Nolan Richardson, who was Anderson's mentor at Arkansas, and you look at the way Bob Huggins plays at West Virginia, that's a West Virginia team that had a disappointing season last season, Ended up in the CBI, which, if you know Bob Huggins at all, is something that is totally out of the ordinary. West Virginia does get Saka tornate back, and he's one of the better shot blockers in the nation. So we'll see what that does against St. John's and a young front line and a young group that may be struggling to make shots come first week in December. We'll see what the future holds. But I do think that is a game. First game in the Garden, so you're going to have some of the younger guys looking to impress a little more and and show out, so to speak. I do think that that could be not necessarily a make-or-break game, but a momentum game that could carry St. John's through finals week and on an upswing going into that Arizona game I mentioned.
0: So now let's move into the conference schedule. I think that the Johnnies, I mean, they start right away with a very winnable opportunity against – the Butler Bulldogs uh, at Carnaseca, a place where St. John's has actually beaten the Bulldogs three in a row now and they could make it four. And I feel like with the St. John's team, I think a one and zero start will definitely benefit them more than, you know, dropping one at home against a Butler team that
2: is barely above them in terms of their team caliber. Oh, absolutely, Tim. Getting that game at Carter can only help Saint John's. And if you're if you're a visiting team going into that atmosphere, it's an experience that you've never had before and probably never will have unless you're playing there again the next year. It's a bandbox, as you know. The fans are right on top of you. It allows itself for heart attack finishes and Butler's been in its share of those, I do think St. John's was very fortuitous to get that game as an opener. Going to Xavier and Georgetown right after that, however, isn't exactly favorable for the Red Storm. So I could definitely see a 1-2 and two start to the conference season at best. I do think 0-3 is still in play, obviously, before DePaul. That's the game that I'm worried about January 11th at home. This is a DePaul team that came into Carter sector two years in a row and whacked St. John's showing that it was the better team each night. So let's, uh, I think if there's one game
0: on that schedule, I feel like there are a couple dates that are uh, pretty exciting. If you're asking me, I, I mean, I listed Georgetown St. John's is one of the five games that I'm definitely looking forward to the most on that conference schedule. Now, I feel like – and that maybe you might have something different in terms of uh, which game for St. John's will be one
2: that you're definitely going to have marked on your calendar. The two at Seton Hall, definitely, especially with the way the Pirates look this season. I think they're the Big East champion, honestly. I do think Seton Hall upends Villanova and wins the Big East. So those two games, the one at Prudential and then the one at Madison Square Garden are going to be must-see – on my calendar, Villanova is always a big game, just because of what Jay Wright's been able to do with that program since the Big East restructured. Villanova has been the unquestioned king of the conference and has two national championships in four years to show for it. But the two against Seton Hall, the one at home against Villanova, and if I'm if I'm going to go for a wild card here, I'll take Providence to Carter Seca. That game probably will have a little more juice than the MSG games, just because of the small atmosphere and how Ed Cooley is able to coach up his teams. I like that game a lot. Yeah. And the
0: last time Providence went to Karnaseka was uh, opening night of the 2017, 18 season and Providence, I mean, they to put it lightly. They opened up a can that night. Kyron Cartwright. Absolutely. Yep. So in all honesty, what do you see the ceiling for this St.
2: John's team? They're going to play on on Wednesday night at MSG. I think that's pretty much established. But I I could see see seven or eight for this team. They'll probably be picked in the 9-10 range just because of the upheaval in the offseason and having to replace a talent like Shamori Pons. And forget about Pons. Having to replace a Swiss Army knife like Justin Simon and a rim protector like Marvin Clark, two pieces that a lot of people seem to be ignoring because of just how dynamic Pons was to the offense, I, I could see seven or eight for St. John's. The problem with the Red Storm this year, Tim, they're retooling while the rest of the conference is improving and getting better and preserving its youth for another season, and that that's really the downfall for the Red Storm.
0: Yeah, see, for me, I got them in that five to six win range, more leaning towards the five side. Seven to eight, I can definitely see as a possibility as being the ceiling. Again, is it's, it's got to come down to what's what are they going to do outside of Heron and Figueroa? Those are two excellent players, but the scouting reports for every other team that that they have is going to be centered around those two guys. And if nobody else is able to break that scat, break that trend of just being the robins to the Batman of Heron and Figueroa, then teams are going to be able to figure them out real easily. No question about that. All right. Well, Jaden, it was great catching up with you talking a little St. John's basketball. I know I'm definitely going to get you on as the season rolls on. So, hey, we're only 34 days. Well, we're we're getting close now, a month away now. So it's coming, man. It's coming.
2: Absolutely. Only five weeks away. What's better than that? Oh, yeah. Nothing better. I'll tell you. The answer is (laughs) nothing.
0: All right, well, Jaden, thanks for stopping by. I'll make sure to have you on real soon.
2: Anytime, Tim. Always a pleasure.
0: All right, it's finally time for this week's Icebreaker. Now, the calendar finally turned to October just a few days ago. It's crazy to think 2019 is almost over, but as many of you know, October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and college basketball doesn't happen in October it starts in November every year so there's obviously no regular season college basketball although there are a few exhibition games secret scrimmages charity exhibitions so on and so forth they do happen from time to time but again there's no regular season college hoops in October so what does college basketball do to help raise awareness for breast cancer during the season they tend to do that either in January or February And the one school that has done such an excellent job of doing that, just within this conference and nationally in general, they have been at the forefront of this, is Creighton. Creighton will be handling their 10th annual pink game this January. It's been an annual tradition in Omaha now for a decade. They typically hold that pink game at the end of January. And I'm not going to lie, it's one of my favorite college basketball traditions that is held annually. And definitely an underrated one at that as well. However, other schools in the conference didn't really take notice of it and decide to follow that trend in supporting a great cause until the 2017-18 season when Providence held their first annual pink game on Valentine's Day 2018, a game in which they upset Villanova a huge upset, and a tradition that returned the following season in a game which Providence demolished St. John's at the dunk, and they're bringing it back again this year. Meanwhile, a year ago, Seton Hall finally had their pink game for the first time ever on the basketball court. I know they typically do it for women's soccer, and typically, at least when I was there, they would wear pink jerseys throughout the entire month of October, which meant a good portion of their conference schedule. Now, as to why the men's basketball team just finally started to pick up on that just last year, I don't really know. But the fact that they're on it now, it's a good sign. That's That means we're going in the right direction. And from what I can tell, I don't really know if it's going to be a fact yet, but i highly recommend bringing that tradition back. It was a great success last year when they did it against Georgetown, a game which they won, by the way. And I just just to keep this in in focus, if you will, cancer affects everybody. I mean, just with breast cancer alone, my aunt died of breast breast cancer complications 10 years ago, and just in cancer in general, I mean, I've had several members of my family affected my cancer, including my own dad, including my father. And I mean, this was long before I was born, but still, you know, he's been a cancer survivor for over 30 years. And it's something I really deeply care about, raising uh, awareness for all types of cancer. And breast cancer was something that I really started to grasp and really get behind the cause when I was a senior in high school, when, during my senior year, they decided to bring back the Powderpuff football game, where the junior girls and the senior girls would play against each other, and it all the proceeds for that game went to um, making strides for breast cancer. So, and me being a high school senior, I mean, I know I didn't have that much money in the bank, but I I threw down ten bucks for that. I mean, I paid five bucks again. I threw an additional five for the foundation because to me, like that stuff matters to me. It really does because I know it affects so many people. A good friend of mine, her mom was affected by breast cancer not too long ago. I mean, during the time that I knew her in college. So, uh, Gabby, I hope you you end up listening to this and just know you're always in my prayers and whatnot and same with your family. But but for some reason, it seems like Creighton, Providence, and Seton Hall, uh, Creighton being the earliest that caught on this bandwagon of having a breast cancer awareness game annually, and then finally Providence-Seton Hall finally following that trend, it seems like the rest of the conference is kind of lacking behind. And now, in retrospect, in the women's game, they do a peak game every single year at every single school across the country in, in the annual what they call Play for K Games in honor of the legendary North Carolina State coach, K Yao. And I thought that was amazing in itself as well and for some reason it just doesn't really register in the same way at the men's level. So, in a way, I guess this is my public service announcement urging the rest of the Big East to follow the trend of the Creighton Blue Jays, like Providence St. Hall has done over the last couple of years, you know, challenging the rest of the conference, Butler, DePaul, Georgetown, Marquette, St. John's, Nova, Xavier. You guys are next to, you know, try to Continue this legacy of supporting breast cancer in the Big East. I really see it as <sighs> it's tough finding the right words for it, but it's a conference that carves its own path. It's unique. It's different. It is its own style. Unlike you know the ACC, the Big Twelve, the Big Ten, you know what you're going to get. The Big East, you really don't know what you're going to get. Other than you know you're going to get a hard no style of basketball, but in terms of the conference itself and what these schools have to offer, maybe being unique is the the fact that every school has a has a pink game every single year. Now, so far, one school definitely does it every year. It's been a long-standing tradition. Two others seem to be going in that direction. It's now just up to every other member school in the conference. And then obviously with UConn coming in next season to continue that as well. So to the other seven schools, I really, really hope that the pink game is something you can definitely foresee it adding to your schedule in the very near future. So that wraps it up for this week's episode of the Igloo. I'll be putting out my final preview episode. We'll be doing it on Wednesday, October 9th, and that's the last two teams i got to preview. It's definitely the two teams that have been the most successful in the Big East so far since realignment, and that is Villanova and Xavier. Should be an exciting episode. I hope you tune in in then. Until then, this is Tim Best signing off. Catch you on the next episode of The Igloo.